want to encourage you um, to uh, have a conversation with one of the people that went on the trip. Ask them those questions. All right, weren't able to show all the testimonies of everybody's answers, okay, here in the video, but I encourage you, all right, to, to, to have a conversation and ask those questions to those who, uh, who went on the trip. How did you see God's nature? How did God use you for his glory? All right, and, and I think it's also an important question for all of us to ask ourselves as we follow Christ is, lately, how have I seen God's nature in my life? How is he displaying his nature to me? Because ultimately, identifying his nature, identifying his activity, the way that he works causes us to stop and worship. There's nothing that makes us more full and satisfied as humans created by God than when we worship, because that's what he's created us for. And so identifying the activity or the nature of God around you in your life is going to cause you to feel more full than you've ever felt before in your life. And then also, how is God using you for his glory is a question you ought to ask yourself. And sometimes it's a weird question to think about because they're like, ah, I, I, don't, I feel arrogant or prideful, whatever. No, it's an important question to think about that, that, that God is using me for his glory. Because if you want to find significance and security in your life, think about the creator of the world is using you for his plan of salvation. That'll give you purpose. That'll cause you to get up out of bed. That'll give you a sense of significance in a culture where all worthiness and value is being stripped away. Ask yourself those two questions. This morning we're going to be in John chapter 8, so go ahead and flip there. John chapter 8, we're continuing this walk through the book of John, and we've just seen in John chapter 7 and previously that Jesus is having this lengthy conversation with the Pharisees. At the Feast of Booths, this celebration of the harvest, right? Uh, and in this lengthy conversation that Jesus has had with the Pharisees, he's uh, revealing parts of his nature to the Pharisees. He's, he, he's showing the fallacy of the way that they think. He's showing them the fallacy of their hope. He says, hey, you've put your hope in, in Moses, in the Old Testament law. But if you understood Moses, you would know that all Moses' writings point to me. You know, and then he says that the last day of the Feast of Booths, Adam talked about last week, that he stands up on the last day and says, hey, if you're thirsty, come to me. Come drink from what I have to give you, and out of you will flow a river of living water. All right, and at this point, there are some who are listening to Jesus, watching the miracles that Jesus has been doing, and they're going, this has got to be him. For who could do more than what he has done? And there's others, you know, like the Pharisees and the scribes, they're like, no. They can't see. They refuse to. It threatens their status, their position. They seek to have him arrested. But the officers that they sent to arrest Jesus were like, nah, no one talks like this man. No one does and says what this man says and does. All right? And ultimately, Jesus is not arrested up until this point because it wasn't his time yet. His hour hasn't come. By his hour, his time for glorification through sacrificing his life has not yet come, which is ultimately why he wasn't arrested. So then we pick up in John chapter 8. You're still holding on to your rocks? You didn't put your rocks down, did you? 
If you put your rock down, I'm going to start throwing, and I'm just going to command people to throw it at you. All right, hold on to your rocks. John chapter 8, we pick up. And so after this feast of booze, it says in 53, they went each to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, which is just outside of Jerusalem, because his home was not in Jerusalem. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. So he stayed at the Mount of Olives. Uh, I was reading this past week, and the city of Bethany is on the eastern slope of uh, the Mount of Olives. And that's where Mary, Magdalene, um, and, and, and Lazarus. And Martha lived in this town of Bethany. And so these were very intimate friends with Jesus, close friends of Jesus. And so Jesus probably stayed, all right, with them. And so in the morning, in verse 2, it says, Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. A woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst. So Jesus is sitting down teaching these people that have come because people are like, man, this guy says things that no one says. He talks like no one talks. I'm leaning in. This has got to be the one. There's something different about this cat. And so they're listening to Jesus talk as he sits down. And here comes the Pharisees and the scribes. And they place this woman in the midst here and say, this woman has been caught in adultery. Now in the law, uh, excuse me, verse 4, they said to him, they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? What do you say, Jesus? The law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say, This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bit down and wrote his finger on the ground. They said this to test him, that they might have some charge against him. The law of Moses says we're supposed to stone this woman who we've brought to you, who was caught in the act of adultery. We've walked in, we've seen her in the act of adultery, and so we're bringing her to you. The law says that we're supposed to stone her. What do you say? And they said this to test him because here's, here, here are two possible charges they might bring against Jesus. One, if he dismisses the Old Testament law, they will have a charge against him. And he will no longer fulfill and be the perfect sacrifice for our sin because he did not live this perfect life in which he fulfilled the Old Testament law. If he dismisses the Old Testament law, he has broken the law in which he came to fulfill and to walk perfectly in for us because we could not. And so if he dismisses the law, the Pharisees have this charge against him. Also, the the, the Jewish people here, the second charge they would have against him is that the Jewish people are under Roman rule. They're under Roman authority. And so the act of execution, the act of putting somebody to death was not a decision that the Jewish scribes and the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the officers could make on their own. This is why you see Jesus being taken before Pilate, before Roman rule, before his execution. This was not in their authority to decide to execute somebody. 
And so if Jesus then sits here as like, yes, stoner, that's what the Old Testament law says, then he steps out of place. He has broken the authority's rule. And so there's this trap that these Pharisees think they have Jesus in. This charge that they're trying to put against him because they had just spent the whole week at the Feast of Brews trying to nail this cat down. Trying to expose him. Trying to reveal that he's just some crazy lunatic. And they failed all week long. And so the next morning they bring this adulterous woman and they're thinking, surely we got him now. We'll have a charge to bring against him. Look what Jesus says. Let me back up just for a second. Leviticus 20.10 is, uh, is the Old Testament commandment in which uh, the two commit adultery together. Both the, the, the man and the woman are to be brought and be stoned. Deuteronomy 22.22-23 also indicates that both man and woman caught in adultery must be brought forward. Both shall be stoned. If this woman was caught in the act of adultery, where's the man? Pharisees didn't want to bring the man. If they caught her in the act, have drug her to the center of this, this moment of teaching where she's exposed, where's the man? And so when it says that here, that Jesus bent down, when the Pharisees asked him this question, he bent down and wrote in the sand. So, you know, may, I don't know. A bunch of people have their own assumptions on what Jesus wrote in the sand. Nobody knows what Jesus wrote in the sand. Part of me thinks that maybe he wrote Leviticus 20.10 or Deuteronomy 22.22. Implying, where's the man? As they ask, hey, should we stone her? Verse 7, so he bends down and writes in the sand, and as they continued to ask him, then he stood up and said to them, so he was sitting down teaching, they persisted to ask, hey, hey, what should we do with her? He then stands up and says to them, let him who, was out, who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, but when they heard it, they went away one by one beginning with the oldest one, older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. There's a lot here that I want to dive into Jesus' response. Because remember the two charges that they sought to bring against him, Jesus kind of wiggles through those two charges so craftily, all right? Because his wisdom is beyond our wisdom. He says, let me, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. So he doesn't dismiss the Old Testament law. He says, right, that's what it says. So let the one that hasn't sinned go first. Let the one who hasn't sinned go first. And what happens? They all walk away, leaving Jesus standing there with the woman. Jesus, perfect, sinless, 
He doesn't dismiss the Old Testament law. He says, yes, you're right, so let's do this. You without sin go first, and let's do this. Knowing everyone is sinful. There's not one without guilt. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And then because he knows this, that they're all going to walk away because they're all going to know that I have sin resonating in me. My nature is sinful. Well, then he doesn't overstep the boundaries of the Roman rule. And so there's no charges to be brought against Jesus. So as he's standing there with a woman, he says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. You might ask, hey, Jesus is standing there. He's sinless. He can throw a stone. The Old Testament law says you're supposed to stone her. So by Jesus not stoning her, he's dismissed the Old Testament law. Right? It's not fulfilled. But when you look forward, when you look, at the, look to the end of Jesus' ministry, you can picture Jesus standing in front of this woman, thinking about, no, the justice for you is going to be acted upon. It will be enacted. The stones that should serve your justice, I will take. And so he doesn't dismiss the Old Testament law. He fulfills it in saying, I'm going to wear that. I'm going to bear that. I'm going to go hang for you. Fulfilling the Old Testament law. Fulfilling the wrath and the judgment of God against sin. He doesn't dismiss it. He doesn't overstep Roman rule. There's no charge to bring against him. If you got your Bibles, I want you to flip to Hebrews chapter 8. Because I want to point out what is taking place here. The title of this message is The Beauty of New. Is the beauty of new because what we see in this story is the law. Jesus is coming to fulfill the Old Testament law, ushering in the new covenant. What he, what he demonstrated, what he illustrated for this adulterous woman is the new covenant that he was sent to usher in. To fulfill the Old Testament law, to bring in the new covenant. And this is what I mean by that. Hebrews chapter 8, starting in verse 6. 
says this, but as it is, Christ has, has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days, are to come, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Let me stop there and say this. Jesus' ministry has come in to usher in this, bring this new covenant, this second covenant. That the first covenant, if it would have not have been faultless, there would be no need for the second covenant. I just want to say this about the Old Testament and the Old Testament law. The law in and of itself is not faultless. The law in which God set forth, gave to Israel, is not faultless. There is not error in the law that God had given them. Look here. It says in 8, for he finds fault with them when he says, verse 9, for they did not continue in my covenant. The problem with the first covenant, the problem with the Old Testament law is humanity. Sin. There's not a problem with the law. The reason why the second covenant is enacted on better promises, better principles, better blessings, is because the first covenant we can't uphold, and therefore there is no blessing. There is no promise. There is no hope for us. Not that the law is bad. Humanity is sinful, and we can't fulfill it. We can't live up to it. And so that's why God has said, I'm going to send my son to mediate this second covenant. Pick up back in verse 10 of Hebrews. What is this new covenant that Jesus displays for this adulterous woman? Verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and, and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. Verse 12, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. That's what Jesus displays to this adulterous woman. The Old Testament law of stoning her in this moment is vanishing away. And he is bringing in the new covenant where he says, I will forgive you for your iniquities. I will remember your sins no more. That's what he's ushering into this woman. How does this new covenant come, you know? What are the distinctions of this to the, to the first covenant, the Old Testament law of Jesus? Excuse me, God says, I will put my laws into their minds. 
and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Understand, the terms of this covenant is that God is doing the work. He will put his law in our minds. He will put his law in our hearts. So that we all may know him, so that we would know him. He is doing the work, and the way that he does does this is through the Holy Spirit. As we accept the gift of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us and the price that he's paid for us, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, which makes the law known in our mind and in our heart so that we may know God, that we may walk in his ways. But this covenant is of God's doing and not our doing. And it's beautiful It is so beautiful. I mean, imagine being this woman sitting here exposed, just caught in the act of adultery, walking in the Pharisee and scribes had grabbed her so she knows that these, that these pompous people who, who, who are lived by the, the, by the Mosaic law, they know, she knows that they're about to drag her into this circle. She, she's about to be stoned. Put yourself there. She sees her death coming. And Jesus says, let the first of you, let the one without sin be the first one to throw a stone. And, they, and she walks one by one, starting with the oldest. She watches them all walk away. With Jesus left standing in front of her saying, where'd they go? Is anyone here to condemn you? No, Lord, there's not. Jesus says, neither do I. John 3, 17, right after John 3, 16. For I came not to condemn the world. The Father sent me not to condemn the world, but sent me to save it. Sent me to save it. That's what he says to this woman. I don't condemn you. I'm here to save you. And so in Jesus saying this, don't you think the woman now understands who Jesus is? She says, no one, Lord. She recognizes Jesus in a different light. She says, no one, Lord. And don't you think by her experiencing what Jesus has just said to her and what she witnessed, all these people fleeing from her that were about to stone her, don't you think now in her mind, God has placed his new law in her? In her heart, don't you think she knows and experiences and feels the new law in which God has come to give to us? Don't you think she understands love in the greatest way? Don't you think she understands the greatest commandment that God has given to us, both in head and heart? That you should love God. You should love your neighbor as yourself. This was the most loving act one could do because Jesus knows. I'm saying I do not condemn you. Because I'm going to go to the cross for you. I am the one who's going to be condemned by my father. 
the greatest act of love. And then he, at the end, he says, neither do I condemn you. And then he says, go. From now on, sin no more. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, I'm controlled by the love of Christ. The love of Christ controls me because I'm convinced that one died for all. So he says, I'm controlled by his love. I'm convinced that he died for me. And so he's compelled to now live for him who died for him. And so when Jesus says, hey, go on and sin no more, what he's saying is, hey, the love that you've experienced, the love that you've known, the love that you just heard from me, that I just demonstrated for you, that love, let it control you and go and now live for me. Because I just took your place. That's the new covenant. Is that we experience the sacrifice of the life of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Because in this story, you've got to understand, in this story, you are the adulterous woman. You are the adulterous woman. You are the sinful individual deserving of God's wrath and God's punishment. Outside of Christ, without the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice of Christ, we would stand there in the middle of this circle surrounded by Pharisees and scribes and Jewish people and we would stand there and we would take the rocks. That would be the just punishment for our sin. We are the adulterous woman. But Christ, the mediator of the second covenant, says, I don't come to condemn you. I've come to save you by taking your place. I will take the rocks. And I want my love to compel you, control you, so that from this point forward, sin no more. Leave your lifestyle, your practice of sin behind. Let my love compel you forward. I want to read this excerpt to you. August 3rd, 1856. Charles Spurgeon gave a sermon talking about the new covenant. And I want, you to, I want you to hear his words and how he describes this new covenant that Jesus has come to bring us, that he is the mediator of. It says this, what a glorious covenant the second covenant is. Well, might it be called a better covenant, which was established upon better promises It is so glorious that the very thought of it is enough to overwhelm the soul. 
Don't you think the adulterous woman's soul was overwhelmed? When it discerns the amazing condescension and infinite love of God, and having framed a covenant for such unworthy creatures, for such glorious purposes, with such disinterested motives, it is better than the other covenant, the covenant of works, which was made with Adam, or that covenant which is said to have been made with Israel on the day when they came out of Egypt. It is better, for it is founded upon better principles. Hear what he says about the old covenant. The old covenant was founded on the principle of merit. It was, serve God, and thou shalt be rewarded for it. If thou walkest perfectly in the fear of the Lord, God will walk well towards thee. And all the blessings of Mount Gerizim shall come upon thee, and thou shalt be exceedingly blessed in the world, and the world which is to come. Merit. And none of us have any merit when it comes to right relationship with God. The old covenant, the old law, there's nothing wrong with it. There's something wrong with us, which is why Christ came. He goes on to talk about the new covenant. But the new covenant is not founded on works at all. It is a covenant of pure, unmingled grace. You may read it from its first word to its last, and there is not a solitary syllable as to anything to be done by us. Go back to Hebrews 8, 6 through 13. What does God say? I will. I will put it in your mind. I will put it in your heart. I will be your God. I will remember your iniquity and sin no more. I will be merciful towards you. There's not a solitary syllable as to anything to be done by us. The whole covenant is a covenant not so much between man and his maker as between Jehovah and man's representative, the Lord Jesus Christ. The human side of the covenant has been already fulfilled by Jesus. And there remains nothing now but the covenant of giving, not the covenant of requirements. The whole covenant with regard to us, the people of God, now stands this. I will give this. I will bestow that. I will fulfill this promise. I will grant thou favor. It's God's covenant to us. But it's a covenant in which God makes with his son. We're not trying to earn a merit. The terms of the second covenant is, do you believe in the covenant that he sent? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? It's not a covenant of merit. It's a covenant of accepting. It's a covenant of submission. But there is nothing for us to do except to be controlled by the love of God. Just like when Jesus tells this woman, go and sin no more. What's there for us to do in this covenant? To sit in front of the cross 
remember the gospel and let his love control us and compel us forward. That's what's in it for us. And so the band's going to come back up. And there's going to be a time of, of reflection and a song of worship. And I want you to think about the new covenant that Jesus Christ came to mediate between you and God. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Because the wrath and the judgment of God has been appeased through his son. It's been paid for. Your sins have been paid for. They are no more. He remembers them no more. As far as the east is from the west. Romans 8.3 says that God came to do what the law couldn't weaken by flesh. The merit that we couldn't store up to be in right standing with God. Jesus lived the perfect life to be the perfect sacrifice for us. So I want you to meditate on that. And then I want you to bring your rock... And I want you to place it up here at the foot of the cross. Symbolizing this. I accept what Jesus Christ has come to do and what he did on my behalf. I accept that. That this rock that was meant for me, he has taken And I will be controlled by his love walking out of here. His love will produce a fruit in me in which my life no longer looks the same. And so during this first song, I want you to think about, I want you to meditate on what Jesus has done for you. The merit that he's provided for you. And as you feel led to come place your rock at the cross going, this rock meant for me, he took. And his love compels me. Let's pray. God, you're holy other than all-powerful, all-knowing. What you do is perfect. What you say is perfect. The Old Testament law in which you gave to Moses and which you spoke to Moses, Moses was perfect. Because that's all you can do is say and do perfect because that's who you are. The fault, your word says the fault was found with us. The law couldn't do what it was meant to do because of us. 
but you demonstrated your love for us. And that while we were still sinners, you sent your son to die for us. And so God, because you've done that while we're still sinners, we now stand before you in Christ. So how much more will you do for us now? as we remember what your son has done for us. And when your love controls us, compels us, how much more will you do for us now, today? God, thank you for who you are and what you've done. Amen. Hey, here's what I want you to know walking out of here this morning is that the promises that the new covenant is built upon is that he remembers your sin no more because of the price he's paid which means you have rest and you have hope Those are the promises you have because of what Christ has done for you. And so be encouraged walking out of here this morning. There's nothing more encouraging to think about. God's covenant to me will never change because he never changes. The fact that he's forgiven my sin, that will not change. I will have rest and I will have hope. And so walk out of here being encouraged today. And let God's love compel you and control you. So meet somebody new. All right, go love on somebody. All right, have a great week.